Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This message is intended as a reminder that we are not licensed professionals, not psychiatrists or psychologists. If you have a serious problem, please seek professional help. The National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. There's some damsels in the DM. Yes, queen. <laughs> Tell us what's the vibe. Uh-huh. What's the there's some damsels in the DM. Yeah. Please tell us what's the vibe. DMs, DMs, yeah we see them, yeah we read them. DMs, DMs, we don't need them, we just leave them. Please, yeah. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Damsels in the DMs. I'm Lauren. And I'm Alejandro. And hello to our new season. I believe this is season four of our podcast. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. season four. And as you may know or may not know, season four has gone through a rebrand, and we are kicking off our rebranded series with Sassy Moen, the director, writer, producer, and editor, my dear friend, and also the creator of How to Hack Birth Control, which we have talked about many times on this podcast. And many more times we shall, because Sassy is absolutely amazing. Oh my God, the listeners are going to get an earful of inspiration, motivation, and kick-ass energy that we all deserve from her this sure. this guest is so oh my god i'm so glad she's on the podcast <laughs> if you are a new filmmaker and you're looking for inspiration on how to get started things that you can do or paths that you can follow sassy is definitely somebody that you should look to for inspiration she offers amazing advice whether you're taking the film school path whether you're not taking the film school path and just to get your career going and kick it into gear let's do it let's get into it all right. Well, today we are here with Sassy Moen, who I think I've actually talked about on the podcast before because Sassy cast me in her film, How to Hack Birth Control, which has been making waves through the festival circuit. I know Alejandro has a lot of questions that he wants to ask yeah. about it. So I, I think I'm <laughs> going to turn it over to him. But Alejandro, have you seen it yet? Have Have I showed it to you or no? You haven't shown it to me, but I'm obsessed with how it's described as, <laughs> a, as each memorable contraceptive milestone. Yeah. A new riotous discovery. I, <laughs> I'm obsessed with that description. Oh, my That's God. Really, thank you. That's a really nice compliment. I appreciate that. You know, because you go through like adjectives and stuff, trying to find exactly the right word that fits what you want to say, but is also unique. So thank you. That's really nice to hear. Absolutely. And can you <laughs> share with us, you know, how this project started and how it feels to be where it's at now with all the accolades that it's been getting so far? Yeah. Well, first of all, just side note, Lauren is amazing in it and also is yeah. on the poster. <laughs> and I always joke with her. I was like, did you ever envision your crotch would be like on a, a film poster and she said no so you know it's a new thing for her but uh that aside I direct social media commercials for a living uh, like write direct produce and edit them and when I started getting into that in 2019 um you know my brain's always kind of like going looking for new ideas and a lot of those commercials involve hacks and while I do love uh, all of my freelance jobs they are just jobs and they are quite limiting in terms of your creative output 
and some of them are very silly. And so I started thinking, what if I use the techniques that I do in these commercials, but actually use them in my films in a way to captivate audiences? And the title came to me first, How to Hack Birth Control. And so, you know, it, it, that was in 2019. And then the pandemic happened and, you know, I didn't think I'd be able to do it. I, I started writing it. And what also happened right before the pandemic is one of my close friends who's about 10 years younger than me ended up uh, having an abortion, which she told me about after the fact. And what happened, the long story short of it is, is that she went off her birth control and she was in a really terrible abusive relationship and she didn't know she had other options, other birth control options that she could actually afford. And then she came over to me and told me, you know, what happened? She ended up getting pregnant, having an abortion. And I said to her, I was like, you know, you could just go to Planned Parenthood and get birth control for free. You know, they have income based payments. And she was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> you know, cause she had just gone through this crazy ordeal. And I started realizing just how many women don't know the options that are out there because while it is incredibly difficult to get birth control in America, it's also not quite as difficult as you might think it is. If you know the right questions to ask and how to follow up with people and what to even look for in the first place. And so what I kind of did is, like I said, combine the social media techniques with my desire to help inform women about their options, because I personally feel like if women, you know, we have control over our bodies, we have control over our lives and we can do anything. So it's really just, uh, it's about women's empowerment is the main sort of overall message of it. And while it does educate on birth control, it's really just telling people, you know, it's okay to be yourself and it's okay to pursue whatever type of sex or dating life you're into. If you're not into any of it, if you're into some of it, it doesn't matter. You know, women, we have so much judgment on us on a daily basis about how we dress, how we talk, all of those things. And it became really important to me as I became more solid in my career to actually have a female driven film because I've been doing this, you know, for 15 years. And especially when I was starting, I got so much stuff from producers being like, uh, well, this movie's about a woman, so no one's going to watch it, you know, or you need to rewrite this or that. And the, or the woman character is too crazy or, you know what I mean? Just things that men wouldn't hear. And I finally was just like, you know, forget all that. I'm just going to make the movie that I want to make with the female characters I want to create. And it's done incredibly well. And I think that's sort of like a testament, just letting go of whatever the film society puts on you as the type of movie you're supposed to make. And it's been really interesting with the reactions of it. It's gotten incredibly great reviews and, you know, people love it. And I'm so thrilled every time like women will come up to me afterwards and men too, just being like, I had no idea that this thing was going on, you know? And it's funny, it's been in so many festivals that, you know, I've made friends there and sometimes our films will play in the same blocks or whatever. And a few of my male friends, I always joke with them, I was like, you're the most educated men on birth control now because you've seen this like 10 times at the festivals <laughs> that we go to together. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just been great. And I'm so happy, like we're in more festivals next year and we're going to be working on selling it. And there's just, you know, kind of limitless opportunities for it, especially because of how it was made to, it could fit on a small screen on your phone or it could go on a big screen. You know, it's got, the capability of doing both those things. That's yeah. Amazing. So you mentioned 15 years you've been doing this. So yeah. at what point did you recognize that advocacy and filmmaking were kind of your like, 
um, could be like, or like, like bread like, and butter, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it didn't really come all together at first. You know, at first I, I made my first feature film in 2006 and 2007 during my junior and senior year at film school at Chapman. And at that point, it was just fighting to get anything done, you know, fighting to get anyone to take me seriously. The amount of times that people told me that I couldn't do something or I shouldn't do something was like, I don't even know how many, you know, you can't count them. And then as I sort of got more into it and I kept getting rejections in the industry, but then on the other hand, working with great people who believed in me and believed in the films I was making. And I was like, well, I've been pursuing this, you know, since I was like a kid and these people tell me I'm good. So I must be good. You know, even if people aren't buying what I'm selling, you know, and it kind of started clicking together really, I think in 2012, where I made this web series that I start in, that's not very good, but I did make Mm -hmm. it and it exists. And uh, it taught me so much about being on the other side of the camera. It was uh, like phenomenal for me as a director. And that's when I started editing my stuff. And that's when I really started realizing, it's sort of silly to say after doing it for years before that, but like the power that you have in your voice to be able to persuade people to do things. And I'd reached a point where I didn't have to like persuade people around me anymore. They're like, no, we're on board. We will do whatever, you know, cause your films are good. And so I just started writing stronger and stronger female characters. And I think that a lot of it also changed with the Me Too movement where women were finally taken seriously because we, you know, it's, it's hard now. And it was really hard then the, like, you know, when I tell people, I'm a director and I would get the like, oh, that's cute. That That's nice. Mm. You know, like that's, Ugh. yeah. And, and when I made like two feature films by the time I was 25 years old, you know, and one of them was sold and got distribution and made its money back. Like, and that got me my first job at a production company as a receptionist because the owners of the company thought it'd be cute if the receptionist also made movies. So they could tell the big clients like, oh, look at how much we love filmmaking. Even our receptionist makes movies, you know, it was really insane the amount of times I got passed over. And I think around the Me Too movement 2016, you know, Hillary losing all of those things where I just reached a breaking point of realizing that I'm not going to just make, I'm not going to make films because in a way that I think the industry wants them, I'm going to make my movies. And if they don't like them, that's their problem. And I'm not saying that I throw, you know, filmmaking conventions away. I don't, but it's not like I'm making movies that have certain characters that I know would play well. I'm just making the movies that I want to make and the saying the things that I want to say. And I've always, you know, exclusively written female leads in my films and uh, they've just gotten stronger as I've gotten better as a writer. And it really just kind of all sort of came together in 2016, 2017. And and also another thing is that people used to really be uh, like shy on touching on politics in films, especially on like indie films. They were trying to reach as broad an audience as possible. And with the 2016 election, that kind of got ripped off, you know, and I grew up in DC and my parents both work in the news and I grew up around politics and it's like second nature to me. And so with all those kind of events kind of culminating together and with my own personal life, you know, turning 30, having gone through so many things and so many jobs and learning, I just sort of embraced it. And then uh, like 
not coincidentally, the films did better, you know, because I wasn't so in my head about, oh, should I say this? Should I not say that? I, I was like, I'm just going to say it and hopefully people like it and they they do. And I just think that I wish that I had been nurtured a little bit more when I was younger, but maybe that's also part of the journey, you know, to get to a certain place. But I really just love to encourage other women filmmakers or minority filmmakers, like no offense to white men, I'm marrying one in October, I love him dearly, but like, you know, like straight white men have oh had God. the microphone, you know, since movies started in the 1880s and it's their stories over and over and in film school, I don't even know if we watched a movie about a woman, you know, we're watching like Blade Runner and Battleship Potemkin and uh, Ben-Hur and, you know, all these movies about white men and their white man journey <laughs> that they go through that I just think it's really important now to embrace the female voice and to be unapologetic for it. And it, even still today, I run into things all the time about it. I was talking to uh, an acquaintance friend of mine a few months ago who was doing quite well in the industry and, you know, just getting his thoughts on uh, trying to get a different agent. And he was like, you know, it, it seems like birth control is really good because he hadn't watched it. And he was like, but you should really make a movie that people would be surprised a woman did it. Like, what if you made, what? yeah. And like, that was what I thought. I was like, so I'm assuming that like Quentin Tarantino also gets that statement, right? Yeah. Like, you know, or like, you know, Ava DuVernay, like, like to her about like telling a different ethnicity story. Like that's so ridiculous, but like for whatever reason, men feel like that's okay to tell women and minority filmmakers. And I just think that the more of us that like kind of stand, stand strong and are just unapologetic about the work that we put out, the better. And that's what I try and do with all of my stories. And I didn't intend to in the beginning, but I, I always have. It was just a matter of finding my voice, really, that took, you know, about eight or nine years to figure it out how, how I wanted to say what I wanted to say, you know? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I want to go back to the point because I thought it was really cool that you brought that up about being nurtured as a filmmaker from a young age, because as we're going through this rebrand of our podcast, we really want to look at the journeys of creators and how they get to the point that they are. Sure. And what are some of the challenges you experience? Because we really want to point a light at how people can, you know, emulate steps, what they can take away, putting more tools in the toolbox to get people where they want to be. So I'm curious what ways you think we could nurture filmmakers better, specifically female filmmakers and minority filmmakers. And what tools do you think they could be provided at an earlier age to get to the point that you want to be earlier on? I mean, that's a really good question and a really complex one. You know, I'm coming with my perspective of being born in the late 80s and getting into this in the 90s and going to college, you know, right as social media was becoming a thing. And I don't know what it would be like now, say, for a 17-year-old in film school, but I do know that, like, I took one of my friend's cousins on some tours of film schools here in 2016. And, you know, at Chapman, I'm still friendly with some of the professors, and he let us sit in on a 400-level directing class. And before we walked in, I said to her, I don't know what it's like now, but when I went into film school, these 400-level classes were about 10 to 12 people, all men except two women, one misunderstood artsy chick, and one lesbian or soon-to-be lesbian. And we walked in, and that was quite literally the dynamic in front of us. And she turned to me and laughed. I mean, she was like, you know, 17 years old at the time, just looking at schools. 
And that was kind of remarkable to me because that was 10 years or nine years after I had finished a Chapman and so little had changed. And I think that it's there's like broad answers to that, which is just allowing women the ability to tell stories. You know, when I started TV production classes in elementary school, it would be me and all guys and maybe another girl or two. And I just kind of assumed that's how it was, right? Because it's like, how would you think differently if you've never experienced a different thing? And where some of my friends maybe pursued other careers, there would be more women in the room. And so I just grew up being used to that and being comfortable talking to men in, in a way where we're treating each other equally or expecting it. A lot of women aren't really taught how to do that, you know, how to stand up for yourself because it's so easy to be belittled, you know, by other people and uh, other people who are threatened by you and they try and use different tactics that society places on women all the time about like, I don't know the way they look or even if it's just like, do you want a family? You know what I mean? Like you have to have a career or a family which is total nonsense, which is mm -hmm. completely inaccurate, you know? And it's just, there's the broader context of really listening to younger girls in high school and elementary school and hearing what they want to do. I was really fortunate that, like I said, my parents both work in the news and my mom's retired now and I'm an only child and, you know, we were pretty broke my entire life and but they never said no when I told them I wanted to make movies when I was like eight years old they said okay we'll sign you up for this and they showed up for the plays I directed in high school and really just like they took me to tour in film school my dad kind of begged me once to go in state you know to like uh, BCU or UVA or something I was like mm -mm, no sorry I'm private school it is so you know good thing my grades are okay so you know it's that type of encouragement that parents need to give their kids and also just like I, I noticed it too I, the short film I did before birth control called fear actually that I started putting in festivals in 2020 during the pandemic and I first started out by trying to get reviews like paid reviews and I would get some like really snarky emails in response to me people very eager to criticize the work, which is, I am more than okay with taking constructive criticism. However, I did think it was weird to pay for a review of something, which I also understand, but then outside of the review, the response in the email, in addition to the review, is criticizing different elements of the film. And oh, one no. that I thought was like really kind of funny was they talked about the pacing of the last scene. The last scene we literally did beat by beat to match the love actually card holding thing. Literally, I took that scene and put it on the timeline, put the other edit and like shot by shot, it is exactly like that scene with the music, with, with all of it. And that's a beloved scene. And that per the person was like, oh, it's too slow. Like, you know, like <laughs> criticizing it. And I was just like, well, take it up with a director of love actually and everyone who loves that scene. Cause <laughs> you know, and then what I started doing was having Vince, my fiance, submit it to these things. And he got no snarky emails back. He got great work. The reviews were better. And even though my name was still the writer, director, producer, editor of it, he got way more easier access. And I even noticed that with like job postings that I'll do on Facebook, looking for this crew person or this job or whatever, Vince always gets at least double the responses that I do in those communities, you know, and except for the, of course, the like female filmmaker communities, because it's just women posting in there, but on the other crew call sites, you know, and it's just, I don't even know how you com combat that, right? Because it's about the stigma. I think about this 
brilliant PBS documentary called Picture a Scientist, and it's about like sexism in the science community. And in it, you know, they talk about this experiment where they made two identical resumes and one said Jane, last name, the other one said John, last name, and they set it out to different distinguished professors in colleges and asking what they thought of them and if they would hire this person, like just as a thing like, oh, I just got this resume, what do you think? And the guy got like super qualified, send me his info. Like, you know what I mean? On the women got like not ready, not qualified, you know, at the exact same credentials. And so I don't even know how you begin to change that perspective because you're already operating at a loss you know, so it's like twice as hard. So it's just like, as a whole, we need to take away this bias that we have towards women and minority filmmakers about for whatever reason that our stories aren't good enough or that we're not worth taking a chance on or something like that, you know? I mean, that doesn't really answer your question, but that's kind of my observations I've encountered. Well, speaking of observations, I think what's wildly infuriating and at the same time, somewhat motivated, well, really motivating, uh, <laughs> is what you were describing as far as like getting these snarky emails or getting a response that was different from Vince. It reminds me of how the access to publishing among writers, like during like George Eliot days, you know, mm -hmm. where she could mm -hmm. even publish under a woman's name. She had to right. use a pseudonym with a, a masculine tone to, right. just to be able to publish. Yeah. And you know, Middlemarch, that's, I remember reading that in college, you know, right. that to have her work still part of, you know, English literature curriculum, um, but still under the guise of that pseudonym that she was required to operate within. It's totally. Flabbergasting to, is that mm -hmm. even a word? I don't even know. But um, you, to, to see and hear that you're experiencing the same thing and that was. Yeah. Years ago. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, it's crazy. And even when I first started, like when I went to Chapman and I moved there from Arlington, Virginia, I consciously, like my friends all called me sassy and my birth name is Sarah. I never liked that name. I tried to change my name multiple times growing up, like <laughs> literally from a, as soon as I could start talking, I would start just giving myself different names. And so when I went to Chapman, you know, I changed my name like officially. It's just like, this is just it. This is my identity, who I am. And it's great. And I, I love I love that. But even with the name Sassy, the amount of like, you should change that for resumes or you should do this or that. And for a while out of college, like my movies, you'll see it's S. Moen because of what you're talking about, because I was getting feedback from people saying that my name was hindering me. And what's funny is that as soon as I stopped doing that, I would get jobs literally because my name was Sassy because people would see my resume and see how composed it was and, you know, look at my site. And like this, one of my favorites was I was doing like PR and branding for this uh, company, Mark Friedland. He does all the like Oscar invitations and he does every calligraphy graphic design for Hollywood, like the big stuff. And he would just be like, sassy, like call me super loud. And I would like come down the hall and I'm like, he totally hired me because my name was sassy. And that's great because the job was super fun, you know? And so it's like, you know, it's, it gets really hard because everyone has an opinion and then you start doubting yourself, you know, but then it's reached a point like when, I don't know when that was like around 2012, where again, I was just like, ah, oh, fuck it. Like, this is just who I am, you know? And if people don't like that, then they don't have to hire me. And I don't want to work with them to begin with if they're so uncomfortable about my identity, 
you know, it's just, it's who I am and it's how I call myself in my head and how I want to be called. And, you know, and if people can't get down with that, then that's their problem. And I don't really want to work with them, you know? And I want to go back to the point that you said that it took you about eight or nine years to understand your voice and hold your voice. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if there was a particular challenge along the way that made you decide to say, fuck it, I'm going (laughs) to start telling the stories that I want to tell, or, you know, a general accumulation of challenges that you went through. And I know you touched on this a little bit, but I think it would be really interesting for our listeners to hear a moment where you kind of hit a breaking point and decided that you were going to take your career into your own hands. I mean, it's, it's interesting because there definitely was an accumulation of challenges. I was like blessed or fortunate to figure out what I wanted to do at a super young age. And that has never faltered, you know, so anything that people are like, you can't do this or whatever in my head, I'm just like, that's wrong. You're, you're just wrong. This is what I meant to do. You know, Mm -hmm. this is what makes me happy and I'm good at it. And it, you, but you're still young. And I honestly, my biggest personal challenge outside of the world, mostly working against me or women filmmakers in general, is just my own mental health. And Lauren, you and I have talked about this, how important it is to really find your own happiness, especially as an artist. I love Hannah Gadsby has this sketch where she's talking about Van Gogh and how people are like, oh, artists have to be tortured. And then she's like, that's bullshit. Like, you don't have to be tortured to be an artist. And it was even funny, too, that you're like talking about finding my voice is that as my life started coming together, as I started working out things of my past and really just never looking behind me, whereas so much of my early 20s was just, I felt like apologizing for missteps that I kept doing personally, that I was talking to my therapist and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to write. Like all my old scripts were me being mad at someone and just like (laughs) working it out on a page, you know, and like obviously turning an experience into a completely fictionalized especially later as I got more into it, like not even connected, like you wouldn't know, but just taking some sort of anger and using it as fuel to write whatever. And she like, I still remember, she was like, you'll figure it out. And the next thing I wrote was birth control. So it's like, you know what I mean? It's just like, it just kind of comes out like, and, and that was really exciting for me because I was worried that I was like, well, I'm not like depressed anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what stories am I going to tell about how happy I am? No one wants to go to a movie and watch someone be happy for 90 minutes, you know? <laughs> so it, it now, and, and now I'm writing this feature that I'm really excited about. That is a drama that there's plenty of tumultuous, angsty, angry stuff in it. And it's, it's like better than any of the other stuff because I'm disconnected from it. It's not like my experience. There are emotions that I know and have felt, but it's not like directly pulled from any event or anything like that. And so I think it's really just a culmination of things of like never giving up, first of all, trying everything and then working on yourself because that I always had this idea too, as I was going through this of just like, if I can work out whatever's going on here, then I'm going to succeed twice as fast. And that was completely accurate. As soon as like, you know, you get your mental health in line, I was just like, job, 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 you know, things just start happening. People start reaching out to you. People start because they understand that you're reliable and that you're trustworthy and that you're good at what you do. And so that's why also I think women, it's easier to get painted a certain way. Like, you know, 
if you cry or overreact or something like that. You know, I don't know if I've ever cried on set, but I probably have in the closet, especially like mm -hmm. when I was younger, you know what I mean? But like, I was assistant directing my friend's film over the weekend and it's her first time directing, but she's a brilliant writer. And so she crowdfunded it and got about, I think like $18,000 for this movie and had a phenomenal crew and, and knew what she was doing, even though it was her first time. But there's this one point in it where she is a horror film and there's, you know, all these complicated shots and she was trying to set up this prop in a certain way. And all the crew, all men started suggesting different things. And like, we were, you know, I'm, I'm an assistant director. I was like, we got to go, we got to go. And she just said, no one is listening to me. We need to do it this way. And then everyone did it. And it was one of those things where if it were me, I wouldn't have said it like that. And I would have probably just <laughs> made, you know, because when you become confident at a certain point, you're just like, if you're not listening, like, fuck you, hey, you, you know, like move this. But it was really telling for me. And it reminded me a lot of when I was, younger and directing about how I truly felt like people weren't listening to me and were like, oh, she wants to do it this way, but it's probably better like that. And it's like, maybe they're right, but as a director, I need to learn that. And I need to learn why that's better or why my idea is better so that the next time I can make a better judgment call, you know? So it's really just, there wasn't ever truly an epiphany moment, but it was one of those things that like, my I did this pilot we landed 2016 and that's the first story that I truly feel like and some of my friends have had said too is like this is where your writing is like good like great and who you are now like this is where your voice has really shown through and you I look at my earlier stuff and it's there it's just trying to figure out how to come out correctly you know and so it's just really never giving up and working on yourself and just trying to find the confidence, you know, even to do, to say what she said, no one's listening to me. You know, some, a lot of people just wouldn't even say that and they would just do whatever someone else was saying or keep it up and like keep it inside and it comes out later or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just figuring out how to say no one's listening to me and then what you do with that statement after that, you know? Hmm. Oh, I cannot wait until your material and your insights are part of curriculum of <laughs> across the country and Thank the world. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, seriously. It's, I, I love and admire the tone of perseverance and um, trust within yourself. I, yeah. I think that is such a powerful mode to operate within. Uh, totally. To not only like get the best out of yourself, but at least to align yourself with other people who might be like-minded who are willing to give of themselves. The yeah, no, absolutely. And it's like, the more you find your own voice, you start attracting those exactly like you said, who have also found their own voice. And now I've gotten really good. I feel like of being able to understand right away when beginning to work with a person, how well we're going to get along. And like, if I want to work with them again, if I want to work with them in the first place, you just kind of pick up on little subtle cues, which again, you're able to do if you're not dealing with stuff in here. As soon as you remove the fog of your own crap and just have a clear head, it's amazing the things that you'll notice around you, especially with filmmaking. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the present tense, there's no better way to exist than like the here and the now. Yeah. But 
outside of the here and the now, do you have any helpful morning routines? That- <laughs> or, or if it's not necessarily a morning routine, because I know not everybody is a morning person. If you have yeah, like true. healthy habits that you feel like you stick by and have contributed to making you who you are. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I try and work out at least five days a week, you know, in the morning. I have my own little workout. I love it. It's called- I saw her it, do this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. At the Bentonville. I know this is actually a very funny experience for me because it's a lot of worlds colliding being on my <laughs> podcast, but I'm usually seeing Sassy to do press for how to hack birth control. So I'm like, she's talking about how to hack birth control. I'm like, which projects am I promoting right now? Like, <laughs> but Sassy and I were at the Bentonville Film Festival and we actually stayed in a hotel room together for like, uh, what, five days or something? Yeah, with Heather, the, the yeah. woman I was just assistant director your film over the weekend. Yeah. Which I think also is a good test of, can we work together for a long totally, time? Totally, yeah. You can stay in a hotel room with somebody and not hate them afterwards. And I yeah. think you can have a long-lasting working relationship. Definitely. But yeah, she, I was like with Lauren, you know, we would be up late and I was like, I got to get up early. I have to work out. Like, you know, because it just clears my head and this little workout, it's not even little, it's the Insanity Workout. It's in the P90X family. And it's just a bunch of videos that they have scheduled out for a two-month period that- I don't, I usually, I don't know if I've even ever done it like the two months as it's been allotted, but the videos are great because it's like, they're 45 minutes to an hour and a half, you know, exactly how long it's going to take, you know, exactly what you're going to work out and they are very challenging. And so it's not like something that you tap out on, you know, over time and they don't require any equipment. And that's just something that I found that works for myself, right? Mm -hmm. Other people have their tons of other stuff. I work from home. And when it's not like comes time to working out, I want like hit it or quit it. You know what I mean? I want to get up, I want to work out and then I want to get into it. And that's just what works for me. I also spend every morning if I can watching the PBS news hour. I don't know if that's a care or morning care routine, <laughs> but it helps me. Judy Woodruff's amazing, even though she's retiring, but the oh, new anchors Judy. are great. Yeah. I mean, she deserves it. She's like 72. That woman hustles. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's that, that type of stuff. And just you know, making sure, oh, this is one, making sure to cut off my work time. Like that took a while because I would just go right and work until 10 and then be exhausted the next day. That's something I worked with, like with my therapist about being like, you have to stop working at eight o'clock. You just, it, it, the work isn't as good after, and you're not going to get up like as early the next day. And so now every day at eight o'clock, I stop myself and I have fun. You know, I watch shows, I hang out with Vince, we foster cats, I hang out with cats, you know, whatever, because I realized that in order to be creative and be productive, you have to make time for yourself and take time off as disgusting as that idea sounds to me, because Mm -hmm. I, if it were up to me, I could work, like I would work 24 hours a day forever, but And speaking of Vince, because our roots are as a dating podcast, I want to talk about how you find balance, which you touched on just now, between your career, your relationship, your friendships, your self-care, because I'm like you, I'm a bit of a workaholic. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I feel like um, I can start to resent like self-care time. And even when I'm trying to be in my self-care time, my mind will be going crazy right. about work. So what do you, what are some helpful strategies that you use to combat that? Because I think a lot of us suffer from this workaholism. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's true, especially today with like instant gratification on everything. Um, I mean, for me, I'm 
will schedule out hangout times like weeks in advance. Like I'm not kidding. I'm hanging out with one of my friends this weekend on the 17th. We planned this at the end of November because I was like, okay, this is a day that I know I can like dedicate this amount of time to. And I thought I'd be sleeping in the next day, but we're going to watch the world cup at 7am, but that's fine. But that's also like something, you know, planning well in advance, very well in advance. And Vince is really amazing. You know, you were, I know one of the questions that you sent was something along the lines of like, talk about a relationship that means you like made you better. And I was thinking, I was like, well, it's really cliche, but Vince, you know, um, I was single for so long and dated plenty of terrible people. Like I think as a majority, like most of them are just terrible. And like so many of them hated that I pursued directing. It was either I didn't pay enough attention to them and I didn't care enough about them, or I was being unrealistic and I need to get a real job or they were threatened by it. I had like one guy say to me, like, well, you're making me feel bad about myself because I don't know what I want to do. Like as if oh, that's my, my problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he was in his wow. 30s too, which is ridiculous. Ugh. So it's just, you know, when I found Vince, we we met on Bumble and uh, it like was instant. It, it was this thing. It was like undeniable. And I was at this part point where I was incredibly straightforward with people and he didn't have a lot of dating experience. And so if he did something I didn't like, I'd be like, hey, you didn't call me like during this time. And then you'd be like, oh, oh my, like I was driving. I have my job is I drive cars at the time, you know? And he's like, I would be, I drive usually from 6 a.m. to noon. And so I can't text people. And instead of me just being like, oh, why didn't he text me? We hung out last night and he said he was gonna text me and, you know, just sitting on it forever. I was just like, yo, you didn't text me. Like, that's not cool you know, or whatever. He's like, and it's like, okay, that problem is not even a problem because we've communicated it. And I think like he and I communicate everything to each other of just, even when the day starts of being like, I'm going to be working on this for this time. What are you doing? And like making sure that we schedule out our time together. Like we'll schedule date nights, like literally having to schedule them. And, you know, some people are like, well, you live together. Like, don't you hang out? It's like, no, we, work or you know he plays video games or I'm out here you know so it's just really just communication I feel like is the answer to your question with your friends too because I even my best friends that I've known since I was five they're not in the industry they all live on the east coast and do various jobs that have absolutely no Venn diagram you know like correlation at all and like as I started getting busier a few years ago, you know, we, we still talk on the phone because that's how we started being friends when we were young. And, you know, one of them would randomly call me and I'd just be like, I'm, I can't do random phone calls anymore. It's just like, that's just the way my life is. And I have to schedule time out, you know, because you talk on the phone with their friend, it takes a while to get back into work. Who wants to get back into work after you've been like talking to your friend for a while. And so yeah. it's like, I, and you know, one of my friends, Jane, she even said, she was like, oh, you know, I didn't even think about that. That's a really good point. I would love to talk to you on Friday at seven, you know? And so it's just that type of communication and understanding. And and out of respect for them, I will also text them before I call, even though they're not quite as busy as I am. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because especially being in film school right now, I've really realized that the film industry has such a burnout culture. And I knew this before, but like being in school at Columbia, there's like a huge culture around helping everybody on their projects that you're doing. And our class, and I think it's fine that I say this, literally got yelled at as being the worst class in 20 years. 
at turning in assignments on time and showing <laughs> up on time to class. But it's because we're all so dedicated to helping each other on our sure. projects. And I think that like, it's hard because our semester is literally described as being like boot camp. And totally. when I think about what I was doing before going to school, I think it was also like boot camp. And I think that that's just the culture that the film industry creates. And it's weird because I've talked about this with people before. It's like, you're not saving lives. We're not doctors. <laughs> but for some reason, like there's this culture around like, you know, the old saying like, do you want it done well or do you want it on Tuesday? But that's that's what it is. <laughs> that's that's you just described like all of my jobs. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I mean, that's so accurate because like I think that some of it, you know, because films aren't maybe quite as cut and dry as other occupations in terms of like, get me this report, you know, and that things happen, you know, footage gets lost, footage doesn't look good, the sound card is weird, you know what I mean? Unpredictable things happen and payouts generally don't come until something's done. And I think that the people on top are mostly understandably so very eager to get their money, you know? And so yeah. that's probably where that comes from, but you're absolutely correct. There are you know, so many deadlines that are insane. And for me now, I, I feel fortunate that I reached the point where I can put a foot down and just be like, no, I can't do that. And if you don't, if you don't like that, then you need to find someone else to do this job, you know, which I've done a lot recently because people want to take advantage of that. It's like, well, if you want it done that quickly, that's fine, but you have to pay me a rush rate because that's what you're asking me to do. And that wasn't what we agreed upon. And so it's just a matter of like, being confident enough, but also having the goods to back up that statement. Because like five years ago, I would have like tripped over myself to like be overextended and underpaid. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's not something that you can like walk out of film school and be like, I demand everything how I want it. But like, <laughs> yeah. if you prove that you know what you're doing and can actually make people money and deliver a product, then you have more ground to stand on. And, you know, but it does suck that the culture is incredibly instant that you want everything now what about you Alejandro did you have any thoughts on that I know Lauren and I have been monopolizing the conversation <laughs> no. <laughs> no it's been amazing to hear you both share your experiences I haven't gone to film school so um, I wish I had I did have friends that were in the screen arts and culture program at the University of Michigan okay cool so through them I was able to learn about um, the many facets of filmmaking but I'm, I, I'm, I always sit in awe listening to stories of experiences similar to what you're sharing because, like I said earlier, you know, I just admire so much of the perseverance and the the trust in oneself that you both demonstrated yeah and I mean also if you don't go to film school that doesn't mean any you know what I mean like the yeah. best experience I had at film school that got me my job was that feature film that I did on my own it was an independent study credit but and it took two years but that was the best learning experience then the flip of that is I probably wouldn't have been able to make that had I not gone to Chapman and not had the resources that I had to fight them on to give me. And that's a whole other story. But, you know, film school works for some people, but it also like if you don't get in, just make a movie and you'll probably have the same experience without the debt following you around yeah. afterwards. And you know, I, it took, I, I related to what you were sharing about taking time to find my voice. I think totally. During undergrad um one of my favorite things was finding the screenplay library that 
uh, my friends had access to. And even though I didn't have a professor that taught me the ins and outs of screenwriting, I just loved being able to like dig my nose into each screenplay and just have fun with that and For like, sure. learning from from those examples uh, of great writing I, yeah I, that was kind of the pace that I was at at that time yeah I'm still finding my voice as a writer and um you know it took the amount of time that it that I needed to in order to feel the confidence that was necessary and luckily I'm I'm so grateful to Lauren for helping me garner that confidence and just move forward but yeah uh, Lauren's great uh, I mean I'm sure our listeners are dying to know how can we keep up with oh well wait wait, wait 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 we got to get to the dm of the week oh she yeah did. we got to get to the well she talked about her relationship but we didn't get the funniest or the most inspirational dm that you've um... ever received sassy and the reason that I'm really being a stickler for this is because if you've seen how to hack birth control then you know that sassy really has an eye for uh the douchebaggery that has gone on uh in the last few years so I'm sure that there has to be a good dm that you've received over the years that um that's memorable. I mean, you know, I was actually thinking about this when you asked this question and I think I block out a lot of the terrible ones. I still get weird ones now. Like, you know, people, you know, saying sexy stuff to me and I'm like, what are you doing? You know, my Instagram is like my film posters and pictures and shit and like pictures of Vince and I, like what about that means that I'm up for like grabs, you know, as a person. It's my crotch and the chastity belt. Yeah, I guess it must be. I don't know. People are, I mean, it's just like people are weird you know like they they come at you from everywhere with the weirdest stuff and I mean it it's kind of it I love that Instagram now has a thing where it's like the request and then there's like the sub like there's so many layers so you don't even have to get the crazy stuff anymore and I know it's kind of like a lackluster answer because I don't have a specific experience I have plenty for when I was single and the idiot lines I would get on like Tinder, but like sassy, are you sassy? Oh my God, sassy. Is that like your Friday night name or something like that? And there was another thing too, when I would get those types of comments and I'd be like, what about my profile makes you think that I'm like that? You know, my picture would be like me, friends, me on set, like not even in any way, shape or form. And so, you know, but I have found one thing very interesting that, uh, that came from when I was dating that people who I met or when I was dating guys who didn't mention my name in the first conversations or like first date, generally it worked out with. Anyone who made a thing about my name, uh, it never works. Professionally, as a friend, even if it's like you meet someone, you're like, hey, I'm sassy. You're like, oh, okay. You know, it's like, no, that wasn't like a (laughs) invitation. That was just like, you know, a statement. And I get that it's an adjective and stuff, but there are plenty of weird names. I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow named her kid Apple. You know what I mean? Like, what is a name anymore anyway? We've reached a point where it's just like, uh, get over it. (laughs) Well, now I think is the perfect time to close it out. Sassy, thank you so much for coming on. Please tell everybody where they can follow you, where they can follow the journey of how to hack birth control and everything you have coming up. Yes. So my Instagram is at Sassy Moen. That's S-A-S-S-Y-M-O-H-E-N. And my Facebook is Sassy Moen Films. 
Uh, Twitter doesn't exist anymore, so I'm not there anymore. And my website is sassymoen.com. And if you want to keep up with how to hack birth control, you can go to birthcontrolhacks.com. And we have a mailing list. We've got all this info. We've got pictures of Lauren all over the place. What more do you need? Well, thank you again, Sassy. It's been a pleasure getting to hear from you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is great. And I love the questions you guys ask. And the DM thing is amazing. This is an absolute treat. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, thank you. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. As usual, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And don't forget to continue sending us your DMs since we are going through this rebranding. We don't need no long letters. We just need a fun little sentence or two of a DM. Keep it short. Keep it cute. If you don't want to keep it cute, if you've got a longer question, that's fine too. But as we said, we are no longer accepting messages on other platforms. We are just accepting DMs in our roots as damsels in the DMs. That's it. That's it. We'll be waiting. And until next time. It's going down in the DMs. <laughs> Bye. DMs, DMs. We don't need them. We just leave them. Please. Yeah. It's going down in the DMs. Bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.